Section 9 of Flowers of Free Thought First Series This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Algie Pug Flowers of Free Thought by George William Foote Section 9 is Spurgeon in heaven? When Mrs. Booth died, the wife of the famous General, the army reported her as promoted to glory from Clacton-on-Sea. It was extremely funny. Clacton-on-Sea is such a prosaic anticlimax after glory. One was reminded of Sir Horace Glendower. Sprat, but the sense of humour is not acute in religious circles. Mr. Spurgeon frequently gave expression to his dislike and mistrust of the antics of the Salvation Army. He was far from prim himself, but he held that if people were not won over to Christ by preaching, it was idle to bait the hook with mere sensationalism. Yet, by a strange irony, his closest friends, in announcing his death to his flock, actually improved on the extravagance of the Salvationists. Here is a copy of the telegram that was affixed to the rails of the Metropolitan Tabernacle the morning after his decease. Mentone, 11.50, Spurgeon's Tabernacle, London. Our beloved pastor entered heaven, 11.5, Sunday night. Harold. This Harold was Mr. Spurgeon's private secretary, but he writes like the private secretary of God Almighty. A leading statesman once said he wished that he was as cocksure of anything as Tom Macaulay was cocksure of everything. But what was Macaulay's cocksureness to the cocksureness of Harold? The gentleman could not have spoken with more assurance if he had been St. Peter himself and had opened the gate for Pastor Spurgeon. We take it that Spurgeon expired at 11.5 on Sunday night. That is the fact. All the rest is conjecture. How could his soul enter heaven at the very same moment? Is heaven in the atmosphere? He who asserts it is a very bold speculator. Is it out in the ether? If so, where? And how is it our telescopes cannot detect it? If heaven is a place, as it must be if it exists at all, it cannot very well be within the astronomical universe. Now the farthest stars are inconceivably remote. Our sun is more than 90 million miles distant, and Sirius is more than 200,000 times farther off than the sun. There are stars so distant that their light takes more than a thousand years to reach us, and light travels at the rate of nearly 200,000 miles per second. It is difficult to imagine Spurgeon's soul travelling faster than that. And if heaven is somewhere out in the vast void, beyond the sweep of telescopes or the register of the camera, Spurgeon's soul has so far not entered heaven that its journey thither is only just begun. In another thousand years, perhaps, it will be nearing the pearly gates. Perhaps, we say, for heaven may be a million times further off and Spurgeon's soul may pull the bell and rouse St. Peter long after the earth is a frozen ball, and not only the human race, 
but all life has disappeared from its surface. Nay, by the time he arrives, the earth may have gone to pot, and the whole solar system may have vanished from the map of the universe. What a terrible journey! Is it worth travelling so far to enter the Bible heaven, and to sing hymns with the menagerie of the apocalypse? Besides, a poor soul might lose its way, and dash about the billion-billion-mild universe like a lunatic meteor. It appears to us also that Mr. Harold and the rest of Mr. Spurgeon's friends have forgotten his own teaching. He thoroughly believed in the bodily resurrection of the dead, and an ultimate day of judgment, when body and soul would join together and share a common fate for eternity. How is this reconcilable with the notion that Spurgeon's soul entered heaven at eleven five on Sunday evening, the 31st of January, 1892? Is it credible that the good man went to the new Jerusalem, will stay there in perfect felicity until the day of judgment, and will then have to return to this world, rejoin his old body, and stand his trial at the great assize, with the possibility of having to shift his quarters afterwards? Would not this be extremely unjust, nay, dreadfully cruel? And even if Spurgeon, as one of the elect, only left heaven for form's sake at the day of judgment, to go through the farce of a predetermined trial, would it not be a gratuitous worry to snatch him away from unspeakable bliss to witness the trial of the human species and the damnation of at least nine-tenths of all that ever breathed? As a matter of fact, the Christian Church has never been able to make up its mind about the state or position of the soul immediately after death. Only a few weeks ago, we saw that Sir G. G. Stokes, unconsciously following in the wake of divines like Archbishop Whatley, holds the view that the soul, on leaving the body, will lie in absolute unconsciousness until the day when it has to wake up and stand in the dock. The controversies on this subject are infinite, and all sorts of ideas have been maintained, but nothing has been authoritatively decided. Mr. Spurgeon's friends have simply cut the Gordian knot. That is, they are only dogmatising. Leaving all such subtle disputes aside, we should like Mr. Harold to tell us how he knows that Spurgeon has gone, is going, or ever will go to heaven. What certainty can they have in the matter? St. Paul himself alluded to the possibility of his being a castaway. How can an inferior apostle be sure of the kingdom of heaven? St. Paul taught predestination, and so did Spurgeon. According to this doctrine, God knew beforehand the exact number of human beings that would live on this planet, though omniscience itself must have been taxed to decide whether the anthropoid actually shaded off into the man. He also knew the exact number of the elect who would go to heaven, and the exact number of the reprobate who would go to hell. The tally was decided before the Spirit of God brooded over the realm of chaos and old night. Every child born into the world bears the stamp of his destiny. But the stamp is secret. No one can detect it. Lists of saved and damned are not published. If they were, it would save us a lot of anxiety. Some would say, I'm all right. Others would say, I'm in for it. I'll keep cool while I can. 
but we must all die before we ascertain our fate. We may feel confident of being in the right list with the rest of the sheep, but confidence is not proof, and impressions are not facts. When we take the great leap, we shall know. Until then, no man has any certitude. Not even the most pious Christian that ever rolled his eyes in prayer to his Maker, or wind out the confession of his contemptible sins. All are in the same perplexity, and Spurgeon was no exception to the rule. When predestination was really believed, the friends of the greatest saint only hoped he had gone to heaven. When they are sure of it, predestination is dead. Nay, hell itself is extinguished. Spurgeon's friends think he has gone to heaven because they feel he was too good to go to hell. They knew him personally, and it is hard to think that a man whose hand once lay in yours is howling in everlasting fire. Such exceptions prove a new rule. They show that the human heart has outgrown the horrible doctrine of future torment, that the human mind has outgrown foolish creeds, that man is better than his God. End of section 9